I think we're about to assemble, not just in a physical way, but in our hearts and minds and in our openness to the Word of God. Welcome to 2828 Crossover. Uh, my name is John Farthing. Uh, the main thing you need to know about me is that I am Norma's research assistant, and I'm Landon and Layton's poppy. And that's about all you need to know except this. I am so glad that we're together here. This is where we ought to be. This hour has been appointed for us. God is here, we are here. God is speaking, we are listening. I think that we might focus our hearts and minds by sharing together. Shall we stand? Shall we stand? Sharing together in the most ancient of the creeds of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, written between uh, 140 and 150 A.D., late first generation, early second generation in the history of our faith. Let's tell God and let's tell ourselves and let's tell the world who we are and what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Last Wednesday, when the word went out that the Reverend Billy Grimm had died, Teresa Cornett shared with us all something that America's pastor said many years ago. He said this, Someday you'll hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive then than I am now. I will have just changed my address. What a startling contrast between those words of confidence and victory on the one hand and the mood of helplessness and hopelessness that has gripped us all in the gut-wrenching days since February the 14th on the other. Less than two weeks ago, for the first time since 1946, Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday 
fell on the same day. And by nightfall, we found ourselves shocked all over again by the apparent omnipotence of death in this world of ours. In the same breath, we were celebrating the love that creates and sustains life. We were remembering that we are dust. We were identifying with the cross of Jesus. And in the next moment, we were transfixed in horror as we watched the hideous scenes from Florida unfold on CNN. This has to be what the psychologists have in mind when they speak of cognitive dissonance. How do you hold all that together? How do you ever wrap your mind around all of that? And for us Christians, how do we go on believing in and proclaiming the victory of life over death in a world like this? On this second Sunday of Lent, we're moving toward both the cross and the empty tomb. Now more than ever, this is a time for opening our hearts to the life-giving word of the Lord of life. Will you join me in our opening prayer? O merciful God, you who shatter the spear and break the bow, you who beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, you who received in your own body the death blows of the empire, hear us, we pray. The forces of evil rage in our midst, those who wield weapons against innocent children, those who profit from the manufacture of death, those who placate with hollow prayers and platitudes, those who line their pockets with blood money, those who imagine it could be no different. Discomfort us with the violence done in our name. Heal us of our addiction to power. Cure us of our enthrallment to weapons of war. Restore our sense of common humanity. Give us the courage to protect our children. Make our feet tireless in the streets. Steady our voices in the town halls. Steal our resolve at the ballot box until every feckless legislator has been voted out of office until the profiteers of death have been silenced, until our children no longer fear for their lives, until our lust for violence has been transformed into a passion for peace. We long, O oh Lord, for the day when death will be no more, when there will be dancing instead of mourning, when there will be joy instead of ashes, when you will wipe every tear from every eye, when mourning and crying and pain will be no more. But until that day, O oh Lord, make us tireless in the struggle for justice. 
Make us relentless in the pursuit of peace. Make us fear, fearless in speaking truth to power. For it is in the name of Jesus the Christ, the Lion of Judah slain like a lamb, that we pray. Amen. Throughout the Gospel of John, pardon me, I'm sure that got recorded. <laughs> Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus makes a number of astonishing claims to his own unique identity with God the Father. They all begin with the words, I am, echoing the name of the God who sets people free. In Exodus 3, you may recall, when Moses asks God to tell him what God's name is, God answers simply, I am. You tell the Pharaoh, I am, has sent me to you. In the third and second centuries before the coming of Christ, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, for Jews who had lost touch with the Hebrew language in which their scriptures had been written. When Exodus 3.14 was translated into Greek, the divine name, I am, was rendered by the two Greek words, ego, eimi, I am. It's a very emphatic, I am. And those are precisely the words that Jesus uses over and over again throughout the fourth gospel when he says things like, I am the good shepherd, or I am the bread that came down from heaven, or um, I am the light of the world, ego eimi, I am. But it's in John 11 that Jesus drops the heaviest most explosive of all of his I am statements. Please stand for the reading from the gospel and listen carefully to what God is saying to us today. A, a certain man, Lazarus, was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the same Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness isn't fatal. It's for the glory of God, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was. After two days, he said to the disciples, 
let's return to Judea again. The disciples said, Rabbi, the Jewish opposition wants to stone you, and you want to go back there? Jesus answered, aren't there 12 hours in the day? Those who walk in the day don't stumble because they see the light of the world. But those who walk in the night stumble because the light isn't in them. He continued, our friend Lazarus is sleeping, but I'm going in order to wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll get well. They thought Jesus meant that Lazarus was in a deep sleep. But Jesus had spoken about Lazarus' death. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. For your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you can believe in me. Let's go to him. Then Thomas, the one called Didymus, said to the other disciples, let us go too so that we may die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. Many of the Jews had come to comfort Martha and Mary after their brother's death. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, while Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Martha replied, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She replied, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, God's son, the one who's coming into the world. Jesus was deeply disturbed again when he came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone had been rolled over the entrance. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, the smell will be awful. He's been dead four days. Jesus replied, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see God's glory? So they removed the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. I know you always hear me. I say this for the benefit of the crowd standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. Having said this, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his feet bound and his hands tied and his face covered with a cloth. Jesus said to them, untie him, Turn him loose and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. 
Some of my most vivid childhood memories are about times when I had a chance to take part in a play at school or at church. At the rehearsals, we were often little more than a bunch of rowdy kids with a very short attention span. Sometimes we forgot our lines. Sometimes we missed our cues. But I learned something about putting on a drama. Just before the big night, there's got to be a dress rehearsal. A time when everybody gets serious. A time when we're all giving the production our undivided attention. That final practice, that dress rehearsal, that last run through, is not the climax of it all. But you can be pretty sure that what happens at the dress rehearsal is a good indicator of what's going to happen when the lights go dim and the curtains rise on opening night. The last weeks in the life of Jesus marked the final act in a great drama, complete with a hero, villains, conflict, betrayal, tragedy, resolution. It's a drama in which the most important human questions hang in the balance. Centuries earlier, Ezekiel asked, shall these bones live? Job had posed the anguished question, if people die, shall they live again? In other words, can something as final as death be reversed? Can the dead be raised to life? Who wins the final victory? Is it life or is it death that speaks the final word over our hopes and dreams? Those are important questions, but there is another question that may be even more crucial. Jesus says to Martha, and he says to us, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will have life even if they die, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Oh, it's fun to go to the theater and get caught up in a compelling drama. But the drama that I have in mind today is about something infinitely more, infinitely deeper than just an hour or two of thought-provoking entertainment. This drama is about God's own answer to all those questions that speak to our deepest hopes and fears and longings. It's about ourselves. It's about the meaning of it all. And the drama builds toward the inescapable question that Jesus poses for Martha and for you and for me this morning. Do you believe this? It, it strikes me that what happened in the cemetery at Bethany 
was a dress rehearsal for the drama of redemption, for the climactic act in the drama of redemption, which reaches its climax a few days later at a garden tomb outside Jerusalem. When Jesus calls Lazarus forth from the grave, it's a preview of what God is getting ready to do on Easter morning. But the resurrection of Jesus is itself a dress rehearsal, a preview of what God intends to do in and with and for all those who are joined to Christ by faith and hope and love. Death dies. Love wins. The sheep recognize the voice of the good shepherd even when they're dead. When he calls, they stand up and walk out of the tomb just as surely as Lazarus did, just as surely as Jesus did. And they do all that in a physical, material, fully human body. We believe, a few moments ago we said this, we believe in the resurrection of the body. For Jesus and for those who follow him, for those who believe in him, who abide in him, eternal life is not about what the philosophers call the immortality of the soul. It's not about some spiritual part of us, our souls, that live on because the soul simply cannot die. Oh, Greek philosophers taught that while the body is evil and headed for the grave, there is another part of the human person, the soul, that is good and immortal, literally incapable of dying. Now, I know that many, maybe most Christians, take it for granted that that's what the Bible teaches about life after death. Most of us assume that what the Bible really teaches is that when the body dies, the soul lives on because that's the nature of the soul to be intrinsically deathless. I've heard Christians say things like this. God's not really concerned about what happens in your body. He just wants to save your soul. But I would challenge you to find that for me on the pages of Holy Scripture. It's simply not there. Someone said of me, problem with that guy is not what he, not what he doesn't know. It's the stuff he does know that ain't so. We all know that the soul is immortal. The Bible teaches that, right? It's just not there. The Christian hope for life beyond death has nothing to do with something about the soul that makes it immortal. It has everything to do with God's determination that his fellowship, 
His communion with his people will not be interrupted by death. It's not about our natural condition. It's about God's supernatural action. Lazarus didn't get to live again because his soul was immortal. Lazarus rose from the dead because Jesus created for him a possibility that would not have been there except for God's gracious action. When Jesus called Lazarus back from the jaws of death, that was a dress rehearsal for Easter morning when Jesus rose again. Not because there's something immortal about the soul, but because God the Father defeated death once and for all by raising him from the dead. What's true for Jesus was true for Lazarus, and it's true for us. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Notice that it wasn't just Lazarus' soul that lived on at the command of the Lord of life. It wasn't just his personality, or his consciousness, or his thoughts, or his feelings. It wasn't just his spiritual attitudes that lived on. No, it was Lazarus. All of Lazarus, the whole man, body and soul, that was restored to life. The risen Lazarus didn't just sit around thinking deep spiritual thoughts. The risen Lazarus ate and drank and breathed and saw sunsets and smelled flowers. That was a dress rehearsal for what was going on in the resurrection of Jesus. The risen Jesus walked and talked and ate fish and bread with the disciples on the shore of Galilee. When he first, the risen Christ, when he first appeared to the disciples, they were afraid. They said, it's a ghost. And Jesus said, give me a hunk of bread. You got something to eat? Ghosts don't eat. We believe in the resurrection of the body. It wasn't just the soul of Jesus or the spirit of Jesus that lived on. It was the whole of Jesus, body and soul, mind and matter, the whole package of what makes up a human life. And that was true for Lazarus. That was true for Jesus, and that's true for all those who believe in him, trust in him, live in him. And that's why from the very beginning, Christians have confessed their faith not in the immortality of the soul, but rather in the resurrection of the body. I've got news for you this morning. God doesn't just want to save your soul. God wants to save you. It's not just a part of you. It's not just your soul that God's concerned about. It's not just a part of you. It's not just your soul that he promises to raise to a new life of the kingdom. It's you. It's all of you. Just as it was with Lazarus, just as it was for Jesus, when he walked forth from the grave alive forevermore. And in John's gospel, Jesus makes it clear 
that this eternal life is more than just a future hope. The eternal life that Jesus is talking about, that Jesus is offering, is forever here and now. Notice the tense of the verb when Jesus declares in John 6, verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. The verb is in the present tense. Jesus isn't talking about pie in the sky by and by when you die. No, to know Jesus, to abide in him, to believe in him and trust in him is to enter a new and eternal life that is already a reality right here, right now, and it's a life over which death has no power. A life, therefore, from which the fear of death is gone. And that changes everything, doesn't it? That turns our death-ridden world totally upside down. There could be no greater challenge than that. There could be no greater threat to the powers and principalities of a world dominated by the fear of death. Every demonic system of domination depends at last on the threat, the fear of death. The power of every establishment, legal, political, religious, social, the power of every establishment is finally based on our fear of dying. Every establishment relies finally on the fear of death. Do as we command, they say, or we'll kill you. But what if the fear of death is gone? What if the word gets out that eternal life has already broken out? has already begun in us, and that death, therefore, no longer has any power over us. For someone who knows that death has died in the resurrection of Jesus, this world's ultimate threat has lost its power. No throne or kingdom of this world can survive the loss of this ultimate threat. And that's what made Jesus such a danger to the powers that be in his time and in ours. No wonder John indicates toward the end of this chapter 11 that the resurrection of Lazarus was the final straw that moved the religious establishment from merely opposing Jesus to actively seeking to kill him. And then in chapter 12, they try to kill Lazarus too because they knew that his living and breathing amount to a sign that the powers and principalities of this runaway world have lost the linchpin of their dominion, because death itself is dead and the fear of death is gone. That can't be used anymore to keep us in bondage. So Jesus points to Lazarus bound head and foot and he says untie him turn him loose let him go for the act of resurrection is also an act of sedition against the powers and the principalities that seek to dominate our lives 
through the fear of death. For Jesus, for Lazarus, and for us, the act of resurrection is also an act of liberation. Lazarus was really, really dead. He'd been dead four days. Lord, it's going to smell awful. He was really dead. He wasn't just in a coma. He was really, really dead. But he was raised to new life in a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus. Then Jesus was really, really dead. But he arose in a foreshadowing of what happens in all of those who live in him and trust in him, not just at the end of the age, but here and now, in every moment of a totally new life, transformed by union with Jesus, who is the life and gives us eternal life precisely and always and only by giving us himself. The resurrection of Lazarus was a dress rehearsal for Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is a dress rehearsal for all of those who are in him. Where, whenever we gather, as we're doing here today at this table of the Lord, we're not just remembering what happened long ago at the upper room and on to Calvary, when Jesus turned away from the life of self-seeking and self-serving, opting instead for a life of self-giving and self-surrender. No, we're doing more than just remembering. At this table, we're not just remembering. We're also rehearsing. We're practicing. We're learning how to imitate Jesus, to live as he lived, to love as he loved, to give as he gave. And that's our role in this drama, and Holy Communion is an opportunity to practice our part. Getting ready for a drama is never easy. It takes a lot of practicing, a lot of rehearsing, and that is certainly true in this drama, which is all about moving from the old life of self-centeredness into the new life of the kingdom of God. It takes a lot of rehearsing because old habits die hard, don't they? And we're so often not paying attention to the director of the play. But every time we reach out to someone in love, we're practicing our role in the drama, which is to become nothing less than a carbon copy of Jesus living a life in which the world can see his love reigning supreme, which is for us, as for Jesus, a life over which death has no power. Whenever we love and forgive, we're practicing for our part in the play. Practicing the imitation of Jesus, who loved us and died for us, 
and would do it all over again if that were what we needed. That kind of love is literally immortal because love, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, is another name for the never-dying God who has come to us in Jesus. And whenever that's what we're living out of and leaning into, we're being shaped into the image of Christ. We're practicing. We're rehearsing for the new and eternal life of the kingdom that is coming. If that's what we're doing at this table here today, Holy Communion will again be our dress rehearsal for the final act in the drama of redemption. All well and good, Brother John, you might say. That's a fine bit of theology for an Easter morning, I guess. But what does it have to do with the anguish of a world like ours? Just this. When Jesus hears that Lazarus is very ill and that his sisters are worried sick about him, he doesn't speak the word of life and hope before the tragedy strikes to psych them up, to help them get ready to deal with what's about to happen. And he doesn't wait until after Lazarus has died and been risen to tell them, the good news that the power of death is broken forever so that they can look back on the story of Lazarus and understand what it means in retrospect. No, no, it is right in the midst of the crisis while Lazarus is still rotting away in the tomb that Jesus speaks the word that Martha and her sister and you and I most urgently need to hear. Right here in the heart of all this death and darkness, when it looks like there's no hope for us, that's where the life-giving word is given to us from the lips of the one who never made a promise he didn't keep. I wonder, what's dying in your world today? Maybe it's the loss of someone precious. Maybe it's a relationship that's falling apart or a marriage that's on the rocks or a career that's going nowhere. And I'm here to tell you that right in the heart of whatever is dying for you right now, the good news, n no, no, the best news is this. Nothing is ever so dead that death and keep Jesus from sharing his own eternal life with those who love him and trust him and live in him. When you hear the promise of Jesus as we've heard it today, you come face to face with a decision that no one else can make for you. One more time, listen carefully. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. And those who live in me and believe in me will never die. Do you believe this?
Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We believe. Help our unbelief. Yes, Lord, we do believe because we know you. We know who you are in yourself. We know who you are for us. In life and death and life beyond death, we dare to trust you, Lord, because we know that your promise never fails. So thanks be to God. Hallelujah. And let all God's people say, Amen. Amen. At Grace Church, we celebrate an open communion. There are no litmus tests, no denominational questions asked. Here's the only precondition. If you are ready to repent of your sins and turn from the old life of death and embrace the new life that Jesus offers, you're invited. If you're a Christian, you're invited. If you're not a Christian, but you would like to be, you're welcome at this table, the table of our Lord, the Lord of life. Thank you. God bless you. Amen.